This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. Chris Anderson on the democratization of manufacturing, design and technology. This talk took place at London's Royal Institution on the 19th of September 2012. First of all, my thanks to Intelligence Squared for having me. Um, I, it's such a privilege to be here. I feel like um, all the great lecturers have had like these, these great show and tells, these, these presentations, you know, electrostatic forces and laughing gas and, you know, mechanical displays of the universe. And I, I feel sort of underarmed here. Um, but I, I, um, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best um, uh, to, to live up to the, the history here. Um, I think it's actually quite, quite poignant and right that, um, you know, I, when we launched this book in, in the UK um, and that we're speaking here in, in this room because, you know, in a sense, the, you know, the ability for technology to change the world really or- originates here, um, you know, with the beginnings of mechanization, steam, and and, you know, the, you know, the, the first factories and, and all that. And I've been sort of traveling up and down the country and, and looking at, you know, what were the forces that came together to create an industrial revolution in the first place? And, and how could we redo it? What would it mean today? So what, I, what I'm going to walk through with you today is, is, is really just a, the continuation of a story you know very well that's really, at least on, on, the, on my side, on the, on the digital side, you know, is started with the personal computer and then the web and then on. And I think this is sort of the third wave of the digital revolution, and this one could be the biggest yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with, you know, the, 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 the topic, uh, you know, the, the kind of a bold statement, a new industrial revolution. And I hope by the time I'm done with the presentation that um, you'll, you'll, you'll engage enough to think that it might just happen, that this might really live up to that phrase and this room. Um, one slide with a thesis, and then we'll straight, go straight into pictures. Uh, this is it. This is the sim- simple thesis, um, which is that the last 20 years have been amazing. We've lived through it. We've seen what happens when you give powerful tools to ordinary people. We have seen what the internet and the personal computer and the browser and social networking and blogs and all that do. It, it changes the world. And it changes the world not by necessarily providing you know, creating more powerful tools, but rather giving them to more people. Democratizing technology is the most powerful force out there because it allows individuals to to bring their own ideas, their own voices, their own context, their own uses, uh, their own imagination. Uh, And that's how we change the world. It's by spreading technology, not just inventing it. So that was the web. And that was fantastic. 
but we live in the real world. Here we are. We've chosen to come together in this room because there's something about physicality that matters more. And as wonderful as what we've done on the screen has been, I think that to take those social forces, those innovation models, you know, the, the wondrous communities that we've built on the web and apply them to something as world-changing, as, as sort of needle-moving as manufacturing, um, could, could dwarf what we've already done in the digital space on our screens. Industrial revolutions are... Are, you know, these are not just economic forces. They're not just industrial. Um, the first industrial revolution did more than create spoons and cutlery and, and, and fabrics. It improved quality of life. It, re, it, it uh, vastly reduced child mortality. It basically made us healthier and happier um, by amplifying human potential. It replaced muscle power with machine power. It replaced our bodies with our brains. And it allowed us to move from what... You may have thought of, we may have thought of it as being the pastoral rural, rural you know, grounds, but it was really sort of you know, damp buildings with disease into the cities and built what we now know and now know today as the modern, the modern world. Um, it, it, it did many great things and created the 20th century and the 19th century and the 21st century, but it came at a cost, and the cost was concentration of power. We moved to the factories. We moved to the machines. They didn't move to us. Um, there were cottage industries first, but they were largely doing piecework for the man, if you will, um, you know, for the larger factories. Um, that to really amplify power, we had, to, we, had to, we had to concentrate ourselves around the industrialists, around the sort of the business models that worked around the mass. Um, and so this sort of, you know, this sort of, you know, slave to the machine, um, you know, model um, was incredibly efficient, um, but did come at a cost of diversity, of cultural richness, of the sort of, you know, the individuality of, of, of the world that came before that. It was a price worth paying for what it did to prosperity and quality of life, but it was a price. Um, that was the first industrial revolution. Yeah, now, there's actually very little agreement on when the industrial revolution started, when it finished. Was it the first, you know, we've had, we had you, know, you know, spinning wheels, back into the medieval times. Uh, the spinning jenny sort of had multiple wheels. Then there was steam. Then there was electrification. Then there was the assembly line, mass production, interchangeable parts. There's actually you know, much debate over that. But let's just argue that there was the sort of you know, an industrial revolution. It was sort of 18, it started sort of 1776E and kind of went until like, you know, the Ford Model T assembly line. Um, and that was, you know, manufacturing by and large. Then you can argue that the second industrial revolution was, was the computer, uh, the, the information revolution. But rather than show you a computer, I'm actually going to kind of divide revolution into two parts. Um, the first is the sort of, um, again, democratization is key of what we're talking about here. It is not just the creation of the tools. It is putting in the hands of regular folks. It is, it is getting them out there. It is empowering individuals to change the world. Um, so the first was, was the introduction of the word sort of desktop, as in desktop publishing, as in personal computer. Um, it was, and I, I, I show you up there the, the first laser um, writer, the Apple laser writer, which uh, is the first kind of consumer laser printer cost $2,500. It um, came out around the same time as the Macintosh, 1984, 1985. Um, when you think about it, Desktop publishing, I mean, we now use this word for, you take this word for granted, but, but you know, 
think of how mind-blowing that was. Some of you may even remember that, desktop publishing. Remember, publishing was a factory act. It was the, it was the means of production. Right before that, printing plants were you know, the size of a city block, got, you know, bought ink by the barrel, rolls of paper on railway cars. Um, you know, to be a newspaper, to publish, to influence public opinion, you needed to have access to a factory. And, and that was publishing. That's what publishing took. And then along came the Macintosh and the laser writer and, and the laser printer, and, and then anybody could publish at really professional quality. It was kind of amazing. We made you know, dog's breakfast of, 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 of terrible pages with mishmash of fonts and, you know, completely, completely, you know, did not, did not understand the aesthetics of, you know, 300 years of typography. But we learned quickly. And, um, and we eventually kind of, you know, figured out fonts and typefaces and kerning and letting and all that kind of stuff. And we got, we, we figured it out. Um, but that was just making a few. We could print, you know, lost cat posters and, you know, church flyers, etc. But it wasn't really publishing, right? Publishing is mass. Publishing is one to many. And you can't do that on a laser printer. And then along came the second essential element, which was the democratization of the tools of distribution. Um, and that was the web. And that's how we changed the world. We, we were empowered to publish. You know, and to, and to feel that, well, that we, we, could, you know, sim, we, could, we could have something to say that was not only interesting but looked good. And then we were given a vehicle to transmit it to the world. And that, you know, that, that, that uh, toppled the monopoly of mainstream media, uh, of which I um, am one. Um, you know, I have a, you know, I, I, uh, we in the mainstream media industry had a, had, a, had a fantastic thing going in the 20th century. You know, we had monopoly or... or Let's say, let's say, do um, you know, polyopsony, or you know, we had we had sort of collective um, ownership, a small number of companies where it had access to these extraordinary tools of distribution, their radio, and television, and printing plants, etc. And we lost it. And um, and what happened is not that we were destroyed; um, is that we we saw a new kind of media, um, one that was not making the same thing we were making, Hollywood films and glossy magazine, but instead it was expressing um, individual uh, voices, ideas, um, passions, creativity, uh, the long tail, my, my, my first book. And that, and that richening of society, because we gave everybody a voice, was the true cultural revolution that came along with the industrial revolution of, of, um, of, of giving publishing to everybody. Okay, so that was 20 years ago. And the last, the last 20 years have been basically about sort of, you know, democratizing digital. Putting, putting these powerful tools in the hands of everybody so that they could put pixels on screens. Um, and that's been great. Um, but we've only just begun. So let's just take these two, these two necessary elements, making one and making many, and advance it to the current day. Um, rather than the laser printer, we have the 3D printer. Um, this is, this is um, uh, my little 3D printer. It's, it's laser cut and crude, and um, I put it together with you know, myself, and, and it didn't work for a long time until it did. And, um, and, and it was just the beginning. But, but the 3D printer, I think, is probably as revolutionary a device as, as the first uh, personal computer was. A 3D printer, just for those of you who, who, who don't know, is, is really just like, if you think of what a printer does, a regular paper printer, like the one you have in your desk, it sort of takes pixels on the screen and puts them atoms on paper, in this case a, a layer of ink. A 3D printer takes shapes on the screen and puts them in layers and builds up an object, either in plastics or metals or something else. And it's like the Star Trek 
replicator, where you just sort of, anything you can imagine, you can fabricate, and it sort of beautifully builds up with this kind of alien logic of how it, you know, how it builds the honeycombs internally, and it's kind of, it's kind of awesome and mesmerizing, um, and still a bit crude. Um, it's kind of like the dot matrix uh, period. But you can do it. And mine cost under $1,000. And today you can get really good ones for, for around $2,000. Um, and they're starting to look like the stuff you could buy. And you can make it anything. Anything you can imagine, you could make. Okay, but that's one. And it's, it's really slow, by the way. It's like 20 minutes. Um, so um, cool, but not industrial revolution. You need that next step. You need to democratize the tools of distribution. And let me just tell you about sorry, the right screen there. That's a, a picture from a, a website called Alibaba. Um, when I got started in this whole thing, I um, was kind of messing around with my kids and you know, playing around with Lego, Mindstorms, robotics. And then we got into Arduino, which is a kind of open source computing platform. And you can program it to turn on LEDs and move read sensors and move motors and things like that. And we decided it would be cool to make a blimp a little sort of autonomous blimp. And blimps, by the way, are lovely. They, they, you know, they're little sort of balloons like this, and they have little sensors and motors, and, and they sleep on the ceiling. I love that. You know, when they're done, they just sort of hang out on the ceiling. Um, and um, and they're, like, they're like whales that just kind of float around. Um, so we, so it was, it was, we, we, we invented this autonomous blimp, robot blimp. And then we kind of blogged about it, and we said, so, you know, it's really simple. You just sort of, you just got to click on this link and then have this printed circuit board fabricated, and then you click on these 17 links that, you know, this electronics part supplier and get these parts, and then you solder it together, and then you program it, and everyone's like, can you just do that for me, please, because that sounds really complicated. Um, and so we said, okay, we'll make kits. And um, got all the parts and, you know, baggies and boxes and those kind of stuff. And, you know, arranged the children around the dining room table and gave them all assignments. And a lesson, do not put the six-year-old on quality assurance. Um, <laughs> not only will she do a terrible job, but when the customers then complain, you say, well, a six-year-old do it, did it. I'm so sorry, but, you know, what do you expect? They're like, why did you put a six-year-old? They're not, they're not sympathetic. Um, but in the course of doing this, um, we, uh, we need motors for the propellers. And, and um, the motors are really expensive. They're like $7 each for those motors. And I was like, they've got to be cheaper. So I said, maybe in China you can buy cheaper motors. And I went to this website, Alibaba, and um, looking for cheap motors. And instead, what they wanted was what kind of motor. They, had, they were like, these, like what, tell me what kind of motor you want. And I was like, I don't even know what language to use here. And they had these little stories, like it turns out it's the shaft length, the number of windings, and the magnets, and the, you know, the voltage, and, and all this kind of stuff. And they had this instant message um, application that translates in real time between Chinese and English. And um, I just sort of, they kind of walked me through it, and I sort of described what kind of motor I want. And 10 days later, a box of 1,000 motors showed up. <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, I made robots in China work for me. And they took PayPal. <laughs> now, I used to live in China. You know, I used, I, used to, I, I used to spend all my time in the factories of Dongguan and, and, and Shenzhen. And, you know, literally just 10 years ago, if you wanted factories in China to work for you, you had to fly to Hong Kong. You then had to get an introduction to the factory. You had to go across the border. You had to meet with them. Um, there were some awkward sort of, you know, exchanges. You'd eventually go to a restaurant. Um, you'd be forced to eat fish eyeballs. Um, you'd drink a lot. There'd be some karaoke. It was humiliating. And only after this hazing ritual um, and, you know, important part of it, sort of a bank transfer, you know, deal, would they allow you to place an order? And I'd just done it with, like, a few clicks on a website and PayPal. 
And I suddenly realized that that, I mean, that was the moment that I got chills. That was the moment that I sort of said, holy cow, this is not just tinkering in your workshop. This is, this is the global supply chain opening up to everybody. This is the web equivalent. And basically what we've, what we, what I, what we've established over the last few years is the factory in the cloud. You know, we've seen what the cloud can do. It gives basically industrial-scale computing to everybody. Um, you know, every time you search your, Google, your Gmail, you're basically getting a, you know, kind of a, a supercomputer worth of computing just working for you um, and for free. Uh, and we're now doing the same with manufacturing. Um, this, what happened actually, I did a little research on this. What happened is that you know, sort of three things happened in China around this time. The first is that a, a, the web generation came into power. Um, and they just got it. They understood that you know, working along the seam of the web was the, was the future of, of their businesses. Um, the second is that their, their own technologies became more and more automated, so they could make small batches and bespoke, bespoke um, um, orders. Um, there was simply a matter of just changing the programming, and the, and, the, and, the, and the robots would then make different stuff. And the third is that they started to go into this sort of economic slowdown by which they wanted to kind of move out of the commodity low-margin space and do more small-batch high-value orders. So although I was getting an incredible discount, they were getting a premium over the, you know, whatever anybody else was, was paying them. So the ability to serve the small as well as the large turned out to be good for everybody. So that's... So that was a moment when I sort of said, I can make one and I can make many. And I suddenly was in the manufacturing business without having leaving my, my, my kitchen table. There was a matter of just point and click. And then you start to see the pieces come together. This, at this moment, when I realized I just invented something and then manufactured it, I suddenly flashed back 35, no, longer, um, uh, gosh, well, th 37 years, to my summers spent with my grandfather in Los Angeles. This is my grandfather, Fred Hauser. He was a, um, a Swiss immigrant um, in Los Angeles in the 1930s, and uh, he worked in Hollywood. He worked in the, um, you know, Hollywood was a very mechanical business in those days, and they had these, you know, mechanical film drives and tape loops and things like that. And, and um, by day, he, he made the gears run in, in, in those films, and by night, he dreamed of inventions. And this is him at his uh, drafting table. Um, and this is what he invented. He invented the automatic sprinkler system. So if you have an automatic sprinkler system, you have my grandfather to thank. And my very, very small family fortune came from, came from that. Um, interestingly, when you think back, uh, this is exactly what a Swiss engineer would invent in Los Angeles. It's basically a sprinkler system with a, with a watch on top of it. <laughs> so he was, destined, he was destined to do this. Um, uh, but um, what he had to do was this. He had to patent it. He hated this. Um, he hated the cost. He hated the, you know, the, the time. And he hated working with lawyers. But the reason he had to patent it is because the only way an invention could get out there into the marketplace to change the world was through a patenting and licensing process. And what this, what this represents is, is, a, is a necessary but tragic loss of control. Um, what this says is... I'm, I'm incapable of, of, of manufacturing. I need somebody else to do it, and this is the mechanism by which we transfer the idea from me, the inventor, to you, the manufacturer. And um, it came out as the Moody Rainmaster, as you can see. It allows you to sunbathe uh, in peace while your garden stays green. And um, 
you know, look, this is a huge success. I mean, this is, this is, this is a one in a thousand situation. My grandfather was a, was, a, was, a, was a happy man. His idea did get into the marketplace. He was well compensated. There's really nothing, nothing tragic about this at all. Um, and yet, although I spent my summers with him, this is, this is me um, at, uh, I think, four or five, learning mechanical drawing with Grandpa. And this is me at 12, learning, learning um, how to use a metal lathe. Um, I, I, these were magical moments, and yet I'd forgot about them. This, this, this summer in particular, um, I'd, be sent to, I'd be sent from the East Coast to, to California to, you know, for no apparent reason other than it seemed like a good idea to spend time with Grandpa. And, um, and this summer he said, um, I remember he, him telling me that we were going to build a, an engine, you know, an internal combustion engine. Uh, and, and I showed up, and uh, he said, the kit has arrived, and there's a box there, and, um, I knew what you know. I knew what a kit looked like, right? Build model airplanes, right? There was like lots of parts and instructions. You glue them together. He opened up the box, and there were these four blocks of metal in it. And I was like, "Where's the engine?" And he says, "It's it's in there. We have to get it out." And there was this blueprint, and and it was like you know, it's like a sculptor who sort of says, you know, you take the block of marble and you cut away the parts that aren't that aren't the figure. He showed me how to cut away the parts of metal that weren't the engine. And, you know, we spent the, we spent the summer, you know, with, on the metal lathe, these curlicues of aluminum and, and, and steel building up around. And it, was, and it was absolutely magical. And yet somehow I forgot about it for 35 years. And the reason, I, and as, as, I, as I flashed back after having my Alibaba experience, I flashed back. It's like, why? I used to do that. I, but that was Grandpa in his workshop. How did I forget? And I realized that I, he was an inventor, but he was not an entrepreneur. And I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to build a business. And I had, because he was powerless to take his idea into the world, I sort of felt that wasn't the right path. That wasn't, a, that, that, that wasn't what I wanted. Um, it was the full, it was the complete cycle. It was the end-to-end control of, a, of an idea and the realization in the marketplace is what I wanted. And Grandpa never achieved that. And it didn't seem relevant in the modern day. This is a movie uh, that came out a few years ago. It's called Flash of Genius. And it's about a similar situation. Um, this is about the invention of the intermittent um, windshield wiper, which is like the windshield wiper that pauses. You know, it stops and then goes when the, it's not raining very hard. And it's, it's a real, it's a cautionary tale of the 20th century manufacturing world. And what it says is, this guy invented the intermittent windshield wiper, but then he didn't, then he patented like my grandfather did. But what he, then the mistake he made is he didn't, choose to hand it off to Ford or GM, although he, he certainly wanted to license to them. But he, 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 what he wanted to do was to be an entrepreneur as well. He wanted to, to make it. And in those days, you had to build a factory. So in 1961, he mortgages his house, starts work on the factory. 62, still working on the factory. 63, still bringing the assembly lines. Forklift, still working on the factory. Second mortgage, etc. 1964, as the movie tells it, um, the factory's still not done. It's raining. He leaves, locks the door, turns the corner, and he sees the new 1965 Mustangs turning the corner. It's raining, and the windshield wipers pause. And he realized that his idea has been stolen. He's ruined. He goes insane. The movie then entertainingly follows his descent into, into madness. <laughs> um, but the lesson was, don't try to make stuff. Don't try to become a manufacturer. Don't try to build your own factory, because that way lies madness. And that, and that was the sobering lesson of the 20th century. And that's why we gravitated toward digital, because the barriers to entry were so much lower. This is what the factory looks like today. This is Tech Shop. Um, this is one of many 
um, so-called makerspaces or hackerspaces that are spreading around the world. Um, this one is, is built on the gym model. So when you, when you go to your gym and you become a member of your gym, what you're really doing is you're, you're basically having access to machines that are too expensive or bulky to have in your home. Um, you have access to trainers who help you use them, and you have access to other people who, you know, peers who are, you know, inspire you by, by, by working hard and, you know, sort of, yeah, you know, showing, you know, being into the whole thing. Um, now apply the same model to manufacturing. Um, when you become a member of TechShop, um, and there's, I think, five in the United States, but, but, but hundreds of others like them, um, it's about $100 a month that you have access to 3D printers, to laser cutters, to CNC machines, to traditional machines, uh, machining um, e- equipment, to all the software you would need, to training classes, to coaches, um, and to lots of other people who are doing inspiring things. The, uh, the guy here in the front right there is is doing a wireless control modules for the smart grid, electric grid. And at the end of the process, at the end, he's building sort of a you know, small batch right here. And at the end, he puts a little sticker ABB on it. And the sticker actually is that um, these are distributed by ABB, the big Swedish engineering conglomerate. And so when you buy these things from ABB for God knows how much, they, uh, you assume it's made in a big Swedish factory, but it's not. It's made in a tech shop. And the guy behind him is um, building a uh, vapor deposition chamber for synthetic diamonds. And um, back there, that is a lunar lander, because why not? <laughs> this is what we do in these places. Um, so this right here is basically a bunch, of, a bunch of inventors who are working together on digital um, fabrication tools to basically do the whole thing, to invent, to prototype, and then ultimately to upload to the cloud or whatever to, to produce at whatever scale. They can, make, they can make a few, they can make many. Um, the, the point is that they are fully empowered to be manufacturers as well, as well as inventors, and it's $100 a month. This is a spread of just the makerspaces um, you know, around the world. There, I've, I visited uh, three in the UK alone. Um, I just heard uh, yesterday that the, um, the old silk mill, which is the very first factory, I think, I'm just repeating what I was told yesterday, I think it was it's in Devon, it's the very first factory in the UK is being turned into a makerspace which is really poignant. Um, I, in in, in, in the, the book, uh, which came out this week, uh, Makers, um, I tell the story of um, the Manchester Fab Lab, which is again being built in one of the original factories in Manchester. And there's this, there's this sort of poignant notion that you know, in the sort of shell of the first Industrial Revolution, we're building you know, the new Industrial Revolution by, you know, not by building huge machines and working for the, the machine, but instead by, having, by using these digital machines and giving them to people for... You know, as little as $100 a, a month. And, you know, if, you know, if, your, if your city is on this map, it, it, it will be soon. Um, you know, this, th- these things are cheap and they're easy. And uh, the number of ideas that are out there in the garages of the world just waiting to be released is, is countless, just as, just as the web revealed in the digital space. And it's just now gotten to the point that, it's, that, uh, that, that anybody can do it anywhere. This is, this is how we're going to fund it. Um, this is Kickstarter. Um, just a quick show of hands. How many people here have heard of Kickstarter? Okay, next show of hands. How many people have contributed to a Kickstarter project? Good. Oh, that's fantastic. This is, this is, uh, given that it's actually, you know, it hasn't even been open to the UK, I think, uh, yet, although will be soon. That's, that's terrific. So Kickstarter, 
solves the other necessary element, which is the how do we fund this stuff? Um, the answer is not venture capital. It's not banks. It's absolutely not government. Um, the answer is it's, it's your customers. And you know, what Kickstarter revealed, and by the way, completely accidentally, Kickstarter intended to be kind of an arts, an arts uh, site where you were going to you know, fund opera and film. Um, but it's turned out to be a, a great site for um, startups, manufacturing startups. Um, it, it turns out to solve like a, a, a kind of a you know, head-slappingly obvious problem with a manufacturing entrepreneurship or any kind of entrepreneurship, which is to say you get the money at the wrong time. So you know, when you, what happens is that, is that you, know, you, you, you invent a product, a product, you then prototype it, you then you know, build the tooling, you get the inventory, the component inventory, you build up the parts inventory, it goes into the distribution channel, and eventually gets into the stores or whatever, and is sold, and then people buy it, and then you get the money back. Like, like months or years after you needed it. When you, you needed the money at the beginning, and you get the money at the end. What Kickstarter did, and those and many of you here use it, and you know this, they basically built it around pre-orders. And what happens is that you set this, this is the Pebble Watch, which is the, the, the most successful of the Kickstarter project, although there are many who have now passed a million dollars. What they do is they set this target. They sort of say, if I can raise a hundred, if we, if we, these four guys in Palo Alto who came up with this notion of this cool watch, can raise a hundred thousand dollars, we'll make it. And um, three things happen. First of all, you get the money you need to do the prototyping up front. No venture capital required. Second of all, you've done the market research. If you don't raise the money, it probably wouldn't have sold. You've saved yourself time and trouble and, you know, and, and de-risked the, uh, the product. And the third, and this is really magical, is this up there, the comments and the backers. At the end, so almost 70,000 people, 5,000 comments. That's, that's a community. And what's powerful about this community is that, number one, um, they um, have bought into the product. They're, they don't just want a product. They want this product to happen. They bought into a concept. They bought into, they bought into the people. They bought into the idea. Um, they've become evangelists. They've become, they've become invested in the idea. Number two, they have, they have their own thoughts about how to make it better. So in the days after this product was first announced, the comments came, you know, the feedback became sort of, sort of loud and clear. Um, it should be, it wasn't waterproof initially. That should be waterproof. So the backers said, oh, we hear you, we'll make it waterproof. Um, it had Bluetooth 3.0 and it should have been Bluetooth 4.0, lower power consumption. We got it. We'll order the, we'll order the parts. Um, they wanted new colors. They're like, okay, done. And so now, now not only are the inventors getting the feedback from their customers, but now the customers feel like they, they partly own the product. And it's like, there's a little bit of me in that watch. So not only do I want it, but I want other people to want it. I want to, you know, it's like a selfish DNA, right? You want your idea to spread. And so these customers are pre-funding the product, making it better, and then become the marketing engine. And they are, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's 70,000 in the end, people out there who are sort of, you know, is, you know, selling this product to other people, sort of saying, I back, and by the way, when you back it, you, you sort of, you're, you're encouraged to tweet it. And sort of, you've all seen this, you know, I just backed Pebble Watch on Kickstarter, and you're now, you've now become a social marketing engine for the product. I mean, you know, you can't buy this kind of publicity. Um, God knows, uh, you know, uh, Sony, who released uh, their own smartwatch at the same time, knows this. The Sony watch, which is a perfectly good product from a, obviously a huge company, kind of, you know, fell flat. Whereas the Pebble watch from four kids in 
Palo Alto is the sort of the hot smartwatch. Um, that's the power of crowdfunding. That's the power of building things the maker way, bottoms up, entrepreneurially, a startup, with you know democratizing the tools of production. So. This is, this is the big news. Um, we've always had tinkerers. We've always had you know, garages and hobbyists and DIY, etc. But the big change is that it starts digital. It starts on screen. The very act of designing something in a CAD program, and this is just in SketchUp, which is one of many, the very act of designing something in a CAD program, then prototyping it in a digital fabrication tool on your desktop, like a 3D printer, um, means that you can make many as easily. This, the way it works is, is, is this. Um, so you remember, remember when, I, when I showed you the first slide of the, laser, the, the Apple Laser Writer? Um, one of the magical things about it is that it spoke a language called PostScript. It's a page description language. And the thing about PostScript is that it's the same language that the biggest printers in the world speak. So you could, print, you could prototype on your own printer and then send that file up to an industrial printer and have millions made and have absolute predictability of what it was going to look like. It was, um, it was a, a common language at every scale. And so the first time printing became scale-free or scale-agnostic. In other words, it worked at the small and at the large scale. That's really powerful. Um, it means you now have, you can harness you know, industrial tools. Uh, the same thing's happening with, with, uh, with, with design. Uh, there's something called G-code, which is basically this postscript. And, you know, your smallest 3D printer and the biggest, you know, robotic factories in China all speak G-code. So it's simply a matter of uploading your file to the cloud, and it gets made. Um, if you, you, can send, you can have a 3D printer on your desktop, or you can send it to Shapeways or Pinoco. Um, and they can make it in any substance. You can make it in plastics and in, in various resins and glasses and metals. You can make it in titanium. You know, I, I, I took a little robot and sent it up and had it made in titanium. So that's not crazy cheap, but, but you can make it in, in any material you want. Um, and that's, you know, you know, and it shows up 10 days later. Um, it, that's magical. Or you can, you can do the same thing with laser cutting or um, CNCing. Or, you know, services like Pinoco will actually combine the parts and um, drop ship them to customers. Um, so really, if you've got a factory in the cloud, you just upload the file, and, and there you go. Um, this, is, this, is, this is new. So remember when I was saying that you know, with desktop publishing, we all became publishers, but we were kind of crappy at it, and we had to learn the language of 500 years of publishing? We now have to learn the language of design, but it doesn't have to be as hard as it used to be. Um, one of the things that has really been eye-opening here in the UK is understanding how deep making and, and, you know, and, and, and industry and design is um, in the culture. Um, design technology is, a, is still a curriculum. Um, so we, you know, in, when in the United States, we used to, when, when I was a kid, we had industrial arts and home economics, which is shop class and cooking of various sorts. And it got, it got wiped out, right? So industrial arts was, was basically, as, as it became, as, so in the 1970s, it became clear that working in a factory was no longer a route to the middle class became a kind of place where, where only the sort of the, the least, the lowest aptitude people would go and got a dead-end job. And so shop class was sort of eliminated from the curriculum, aside from the small amount, the small fact that people were cutting off their fingers and there was liability. And I think I was like the last generation to do shop class. And at that point, all we were making was bongs and shooting and throwing stars. <laughs> it was, but, you know, it was, it was not your career path. And God, God help us. Um, and then um, home economics, which was cooking, was basically um, destroyed um, as part of the um, 
uh, is the notion that it was reinforcing gender stereotypes. Um, so I think a wave of political correctness eliminated that. So we wiped it out. And we, instead, we got, we got computer class where we learned how to do PowerPoint. <laughs> um, and yet, in the UK, you didn't. You kept it. Um, I was just visiting a, um, uh, a school, a state school um, in Swindon, where they have this fantastic, they have a whole wing that's designed technology, and they have laser cutters, and they have 3D printers. Um, it's, 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 it's in the DNA, it's in the air, it's in the water. I mean, the, you know, the birthplace of the industrial, first industrial revolution still values making stuff. You know, in a sense, Britain is the best positioned country in the world to train a generation to become designers, to understand that design is not, is not artsy or only something you need to get a degree in, that design is something we can all do. Um, and that, you know, the moment a kid designs something on a screen and then produces it, and, and, and takes it home, they realize that anything they can imagine, they can make real. And, you know, God knows, as the web taught us, there's a lot of ideas out there. Um, it's as simple as this. So, you know, when you're a word processor, um, when you're finished typing something out, you go to the file menu and you pick print. Um, and, you, you know, out it comes on a, on a little manufacturing device called a printer. Um, or in your photo management um, software, where you can also pick print, or you can upload the photo to some service and have it printed as a book or, or you know, greeting cards or things like that. The, the CAD programs all now have this access to cloud, cloud manufacturing. So they all, so rather than print, they have make. Um, and, and what happens is you just sort of you design something, in this case the dollhouse, and then you just sort of pick a menu item and it says, would you like to send this to a service to be made? And you just kind of walk through this wizard, and it kind of coaxes you, coaches you through materials and costs and volumetric, you know, calculations. All the kind of comp, basically, you know, sort of PhDs worth of manufacturing have been turned into software algorithms. And you, you know, you type in your credit card, and you know, ten days later, it shows up. Um, this is what. This is what my kids do. So um, uh, we're a little brutal when it comes to technology. My, my wife is uh, is kind of anti-technology, ironically enough, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so the children are only allowed two hours of video game time um, per weekend day. And the girls are really into The Sims. Um, and uh, we have, we've got five kids and three girls. And the girls all love building these kind of virtual dollhouses on The Sims. And they're really cool. And you can build furniture and populate with people. And um, it's quite a fascinating thing. It was actually designed as an architecture um, game by, uh, by um, uh, Will Wright, um, who did Sim City and the others. And uh, one of the questions was... Um, you know, how do you grade architecture? And the answer was the happiness of the people in it, in the building. And so they had to invent these people called the Sims to essentially grade the architecture. Um, but what you end up with is this awesome, awesome dollhouse. Um, and Bing, the timer, like literally the wind-up uh, Hello Kitty timer goes off, and it's time for um, them to stop their video game time. And they're like, oh, say, come on, kids, play in the real world. And they're like, play with your real dollhouse. And they're like, but it's not as cool as the one I just made. And I just designed this, this, this you know, dollhouse, this, this house in the Sims that's built on the kind of the madman 1950s styling. And, Daddy, will you buy me that kind of furniture for my real dollhouse? And, you know, I'm usually pretty good at this. Um, you know, I have pretty good, you know, so the, the roots and no is it's pretty quick when it comes to the credit card. Um, but in this case, I thought I would do a little research. So I go on Amazon to find out, you know, how, how, you know what kind of dollhouse furniture is available. And the answer is not very much. It's crazy expensive, and it's all the wrong size. I don't know if any of you have, you know, children with dollhouses, but they all come in different sizes, the people. And to get the furniture to the right size as the people in the room is super tricky. And if you get it wrong, the kids are you know, upset. And um, I said, but, I said, okay, I'm not going to buy you the dollhouse furniture from Amazon, but we do have a 3D printer. So we went on to Thingiverse, which is the repository of, of things, 
And we Googled around, and we searched around, and they've got wonderful dollhouse furniture designs. Um, and this was just right, exactly the right chair. And uh, then we printed it, and then they painted it, and they did that for all the rest of the house, and they, and they have free dollhouse furniture. And my boys said, that's pretty cool, but we're not we're into dollhouse furniture. So they made Warhammer 40K figures <laughs> and painted them and uh, augmented them with all sorts of, all sorts of awesome death-dealing accessories. Um, and if you are a toy company, this should give you chills. This is, this is you know, you've just seen your mortality. Um, because, you know, given a choice between the exactly the right toy um, designed by the kids and made on the spot for free versus buying something mass manufactured um, out there from the store, they'll take this anytime. Um, we basically, you know, we have now created the ability for them to take their ideas and make them real. And, you know, and this is our crazy, this is our crappy dot matrix style, you know, 3D printer. Just imagine when, remember, remember dot matrix ones that were really noisy with little hammers that hit the ribbons and it was black and white. And today we have inkjets that are three colors and they're beautiful photo resolution. Um, that took, say, 15 years to go from one to the other, maybe 20. It's not going to take that long with 3D printers. There's absolutely no reason why a 3D printer can't be mixing three colors and producing any, you know, a multicolored, you know, um, uh, textured uh, surfaces in any substance um, for free or essentially for free. The consumables are just like ink. Um, and you get it you know, more or less now, and it's just right for you. So this is, this is the world that our children are growing up in. And if they don't have it now, they will, they will soon. And this is that desktop publishing moment. This is the PC moment. This is the web moment when suddenly people say, I don't need a degree. I don't need permission. I can just do it. And, you know, I, uh, if I'm going to give you all one homework assignment, it's that if you have children... Um, this, this holiday season, um, consider getting a 3D printer. Um, remember, remember um, I think I'm going to guess at our age here, um, you know, to average it out over time, but I mean, I remember, I remember like in the 1980s, um, or maybe, you know, I guess it was like, I guess the 80s, there was that moment when the personal computer became sort of, you know, kind of, kind of affordable, and then your parents would buy it for you. And there was a buy a home computer, right? It was for the home. It was for the family. And it wasn't quite clear why. Clearly, it was something to do with education. Probably, a, you know, a sort of a necessary skill for the 21st century. I guess you could program it, um, et cetera. But it was, a big, it was a big investment. You know, it's like $2,000 or whatever. And, and you bring it in, and, and there it was. And immediately, kids figured it out, right? They took it over, and the parents never touched it again. And, and you know, and, and, and a generation of entrepreneurs who built, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs and Bill Gates of the world all came out of that moment. You know, it was the BBC Micro or the Amstrad or, you know, We've all been there. And in a sense, Raspberry Pi, which some of you may have heard of, is, is an effort to re regain that, that moment. Well, the 3D printer, I think, is that. So, so if you can, it'll be about $2,000. If you, if you have children and you want to see that, the light bulb go off, consider buying a 3D printer this, this, this holiday. Bring it home and see what happens. And uh, the one thing I can tell you is that I can't, I can't tell you what the killer app of 3D printers is yet. For us, it's toys. For you, maybe something else. But what I can tell you is that the generation that grows up with this and, you know, takes and, and considers this, this concept of whatever you can imagine you can make is going to find that killer app. And it's going to amaze us and maybe change the world. So um, these tools are free. 
Um, this is Autodesk 123D. It's a, another example of it. Again, you know, rather than print, there's, 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 there's this make. You just sort of, there's my crappy enclosure for my, my uh, oh, okay, so it's, it's a kind of a, an amusing uh, uh, side story. I, I, th- I thought that um, because my grandfather had um, invented the automatic sprinkler system, I, I asked myself, well, what would he do today differently? And I said, well, he, you know, he'd be an Arduino-based, open-source, web-connected automatic sprinkler system. And so I um, did that, although I don't even have a lawn, which is kind of ironic. Um, uh, anyways, this is an enclosure to um, open sprinkler which is my, 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 my homage to my grandfather. Um, and then, then you go over to, to, to make it. See there? Make it. And, um, and that walks you through the, uh, you know, the sort of how to do it. And, the, you know, I, I ended up, uh, interestingly, what I, when, I, when I had it fabricated at Shapeways and, and then delivered, it turns out that my, my walls were way too thin. Um, so there's a little lesson, um, a cheap lesson, but a lesson all the same. Um, this is, uh, you don't even need to download software. Tinkercad on the web is free and, and really easy to use, very kid-friendly. Um, and in a sense, kids get this stuff. If you played video games, you understand polygons and 3D geometries. If you played Minecraft, you get this. You know, um, The Sims, um, you know, the Lego Digital Designer. Um, our children completely understand CAD. They don't know it's CAD. They don't call it CAD. But they understand the idea of, of creating 3D virtual spaces. And, and now the software just kind of, you know, helps them do that and then coaches them, coaches them through the process of making it real. Um, so, that, you know, manufacturing has been turned into a menu item. That's, you know, that's what democratization technology can do. Um, you know the Apple slogan, rip, mix, burn? Um, that changed the music industry, right? You know, rip the music, you know, sort of, you know, sort of rip it off the, the CD, mix it, cre- you know, create your own variations of it, then burn it. In a sense, you know, manufacturing, in a sense, burn it on your own CD, distribute it, and then take it to the web or whatever. You know, we democratized the act of creation of music, um, distribution of music, marketing of music. Um, it was, you know, incredibly vibrant for what it did to the music industry, and not actually that bad to the music industry itself, uh, despite what the labels will tell you. Um, we now have the manufacturing equivalent. Um, I, uh, if you have an iPad, uh, uh, I think probably, how many people have iPads? Terrific. Okay, second homework assignment. When you get home, go to the iTunes store and um, download a free application called 123D Catch. And what this is, is this will turn your iPad into a reality scanner. Um, you're going to capture reality by basically, you basically walk around a, an object or a person, you go, you know, with your camera, you go click, 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 click. Um, you then press a button, it uploads all these pictures into the cloud, and then produces a 3D polygon mesh. Um, and, um, and once you have the polygon mesh, uh, you can then uh, do a little cleanup, or a lot of cleanup, and then you can print a Pez dispenser, because why not? Um, so we've... We've just done it. You don't even have to design stuff yourself. You can just capture reality, change it, and print it out yourself. You don't like the handle on your coffee cup? Scan it, fix it, print it out, make your own. Um, this, is, this is kind of amazing, and it's free, and it's in your iPad already. Um, by the way, I suggest you use natural light. That's just my... Uh, I've t- it's, 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 we're still early days. Um, but uh, natural light, take a lot of shots, try it a couple times, and you will, you will have basically um, captured reality, and you can modify it. Um, and you can, do, you, know, you can do 3D printing, you can do CNC, you can print out layers on cardboard. Um, there are many copies of my head out there in cardboard. Um, uh, for some reason, Autodesk decided to, uh, to use me as their spokeshead. I 
I, I wish I'd known. <laughs> I would have smiled. Um, anyway, so, so that's, kind of, that's kind of cool. Um, 3D scanning used to be really expensive, and now it's a free app in your iPad. Oh, and iPhone, by the way. So I'm on your iPhone as well. So that's pretty cool. All right, so let me just finish with this one last point. Um, what does, how does this change you know, the nature of companies and industry and the economy? And I'm going to tell the story of just sort of two guys. Um, the guy on your left is Ronald Coase. In the 1930s, um, you know, at the sort of, you know, the, as industry was, bro- was booming, um, Ronald Coase, who was a University of Chicago economist, asked a kind of fundamental question, which is, why do companies exist? You know, and he, it's kind of mysterious, you know, um, you know, why do we work under one roof, you know, for the man? You know, why do we do that? Why don't we just, you know, work individually? As, you know, kind of... Um, you know, agents, individual agents in a, in a, in a gig economy. And um, he came up with the theory of transaction costs. It, we, we work for a company to minimize transaction costs. And what he means is it's basically the complexities and communication costs of getting things done. So the reason we work for a company under one roof with a collective mission is that you know who does what. So she does accounts receivable and she does accounts payable. And, you know, when you want something done, you know who to ask. And those things, those sort of, you know, you know, clear roles and responsibilities and lines of communication are transaction costs. And, and the reason we work under one roof is to simply make it clear who does what. That's great. Works perfectly well. That's why, you know, all of us are employed, and that's, and that's, and that's obviously the key to the 20th century. Um, the guy on the right is Bill Joy, one of the co-founders of Sun Microsystems. And, you know, he too worked for a company, but he, he um, had a little uh, uh, um, quibble. Uh, he said... Um, Whoever you are, the smartest people in the world don't work for you, which is kind of unfortunately true. Um, now, you know, by the way, statistically, of course, it's true, right? You know that for any given job, the smartest person in the world is probably you know, China or India or whatever. I mean, they, they, statistically, there is no possible way that the person you happen to be working with in the next cubicle is the right person and the best person in the world for that particular job. By the way, if you think this through, that's also true for your spouse. And <laughs> it's, best, it's best not to think about this. It will drive you absolutely mad. Love the one you're with. Um, and there you have it. It's the, it's the joy paradox. Um, now, why do we settle for you know, the people who work with us? Because, um, because it's really hard to find the best person in the world. We end up, with, we end up finding the easiest person in the world. So we end up with, with all these talents... Filters. We go with, you know, do they have the right degree? Do they have the right CV, the right work experience? Do they live in the right country? Do they speak the right language? Are they, you know, they, are they available? Do they not have a criminal record? You know, all that kind of stuff. And, that's how we, and, we, and once they pass all those, te- all those tests, then we sort of hire them. So we sort of minimize the risk, but we haven't, we haven't you know, maximized the potential. What are you going to do, right? I mean, that's, you know, I, you know, I know the best person in the world and, you know, for this particular job lives in China, but I don't speak Chinese, um, etc. And so that was the sort of, the, the sort of tragedy of the, of the Kosian model, is that it ended up with a suboptimal solution. This is the cover of Make Magazine. Um, the maker movement was, um, uh, was named by a guy named Dale Doherty, who runs um, uh, um, O'Reilly's big publishing company. They have, a, um, they have a division, and it's now called the Make Division. Make Magazine is sort of the Bible of that, of that of the, of the movement. And they have Maker Fair, and there's something like 50 of them around the world. Uh, the New York Maker Fair is going to be next, next, uh, next week. And um, like 100,000 people go to these Maker Fairs. They are just like, like the, the garages of the region open up and all these ideas come out and it's wonderful. 
Um, uh, last year, on the cover, they decided to focus on drones. And um, I, I told you about my little sort of adventure into Arduino and making things. And anyway, it started with blimps, and then it kind of went horribly wrong. And uh, I, I now run um, a company that makes more drones than the U.S. military. <laughs> and they're open source. Um, so that'll end well. Um, and, um, and they decided to focus on, 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 on drones and you know, the whole notion of you know, the bottoms-up aerial robotics and all that. And, and, they, and they took this picture of my co-founder of um, uh, our, our website's called DIY Drones and the company's called 3D Robotics. And, and, this, is, and, and this guy's name is Jordi Munoz. I just wanted to end with a little story about Jordi because um, I think this sort of speaks to the joy paradox. Um, when I started my, my explorations of what the maker model could do and, and you know, and what bottoms-up manufacturing and Arduino and all this kind of stuff, and I started with something that seemed uninteresting to me, which was that, you know, I knew robotics was, you know, things that moved around on tables on the ground, and that's kind of done, and uh, I didn't feel like I had much to add, but, like, the error was harder, and um, I actually... I, uh, the, I, we played around with robotics with the kids, and that was a disaster because kids are really hard to impress when it comes to robotics. Um, we did Lego Mindstorms. They spent all day, and it like bounces off the wall and moves backwards, and they're like, lasers? You know, transformers? Come on, three stories high? Come on, Dad. Hollywood's really ruined robotics for children. Um, and then we flew a plane. I flew into a tree, and, and I, you know, that was humiliating, but was more humiliating was when I climbed into the tree to recover it. And it was all bad, and I decided, well, maybe a robot could fly a plane better than me. Um, so I started a site, this site, DIY Drones, which is basically a kind of a very web-like notion to sort of share your ignorance. Um, and this journey discovery, I know nothing about about drones and aerobotics, but I thought I would just sort of look around, and if I found something interesting, I'd post it on the site, and then other people, you know, started helping and finding their own interesting things, and then this guy posted a video of him flying a helicopter with a Wii controller. He'd kind of hacked a Wii controller and a helicopter and then put an Arduino board in there. It was like, whoa, that's awesome. And uh, then he posted a couple more videos, and I got in touch with him, and his name was Jordy, and... Um, and we started doing some projects together, and um, we were posting all the design files, and everyone's, this is the moment when people said, could you please make it for me? And um, I said, Jordy, you know, if we're going to make stuff for people, we're probably going to have to start a company. So I said, cool. And um, I said, um, so, tell me a little something about yourself. I never met him. Uh, Jordy turned out to be uh, 19 years old. He is um, from Tijuana. Um, he just graduated from high school, had not been to college. Um, he was actually just moved to a suburb of Los Angeles waiting for his green card. And um, we decided to start a company together. And it started um, in his bedroom, then it went to his um, kitchen, then it went to a little garage he rented. And uh, there's, there's Jordi with Gigio. And um, today he is the CEO of um, a multi-million dollar aerial robotics company with massive factories in San Diego and, and Mexico. Um, and he's 26. He still hasn't been to college. And he, I think, is the answer to Joy's paradox. Um, Ten years ago, when the editor of Wired was going to start a drone company, what are the odds that he would end up with a 19-year-old Mexican high school graduate? And yet, he was the, the best person in the world for this job. He didn't have the right degree. He didn't speak the right language. He didn't speak, he come to the right country. He didn't come from the right country. He didn't have the resume. He didn't have any of that. But what he did have was intelligence, energy, ideas, and access to the greatest information resource the world has ever seen, which is the internet. And more to the point, I didn't find him, he found me. 
So the answer to Joy's paradox is that, is that you can't find the smartest people in the world. All you can do is share your ideas, work in public, create communities, and then they'll find you. And today we have 30,000 members in the community. Uh, we have um, more than 100 developers by day. They work for Google and Apple and IBM and Microsoft um, and are highly paid. Um, and by night they work for us for free. And they're driven by their passions and they feel like they're building something that matters. And they feel this loyalty to the community. We never could have found them. We never could have, even if we'd found them, we couldn't have hired them. They won't work for us for money, but they will work for something that they believe in, for the other members of the community. So we've solved it. We've solved Joy's paradox. What we've discovered is the web's innovation model is the answer. You don't have to work for a company. What you have to do is work for a movement, work for a community. You have to work in public and share your ideas. And we, we open source them. There's lots of other ways. Kickstarter is another way. Um, but the point is when you attach the web's innovation model to these new digital manufacturing tools, including our pick-and-place machines that we bought initially on eBay, then you get what amounts to a new industrial revolution modeled after the web, um, not with a concentrated power of the old industrial revolution, but with the democratized power of, of the digital age. So in a sense, it boils down to this, that just as hardware is the new software, um, atoms are the new bits, that everything we've seen over the last 20 years was just the prelude to what could ultimately be an even bigger transformation when we take it to the physical world, to manufacturing, to making real things, to the economy all around us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we have a little time here. We have microphones. Um, there's some standing mics in the back um, in, in the balconies and, and mobile mics uh, down here. Uh, there are some hands up already. Um, the, uh, the woman uh, on the aisle there. Kickstarter. Yes. How can you, when you put your image up on the screen, how do you protect that design if it goes viral? Yeah. Um, so, um, a great question, and uh, there's two things. First of all, kick, um, you, um, uh, what you share on Kickstarter is the idea. Um, now, you can decide to share everything about it, including design files, or you can just share the idea. Um, it, we actually, um, we're part of the open hardware movement, which is to say we don't just give away our ideas, we give away everything. We give away all the design files, and we're licensed so that people can actually take our files and, and sell against us. Um, now, so we... Um, we're kind of the radical left of, of, of this moment in, in this movement. And we believe, it's not that we don't believe in intellectual property, um, because in a sense we license these things under, under, a, under a, a license that protects intellectual property, but it, but it gives the right for other people to use it and to sell against us because we, we think that the social advantages of sharing outweigh any kind of competitive or economic disadvantages we'll have in piracy. Um, uh, now, so we think if we give away a little, we'll get back more in return, which is to say people will take the ideas and they'll improve upon them. And because the license requires those improvements, or so-called derivative designs, to also be open, that we will be able to collectively kind of ratchet up and, and innovate faster than anyone could ourselves. Um, truth is, we are ripped off on massive scale. By the time we, put our, we post our files, and 10 days later, the Chinese clone us and, and pirate our stuff, and they violate our trademark, and they ignore our license, and they, and they're, and they just... They just rip us off, and it drives me berserk. Um, and yet I still do it. 
Um, and that's because for every 99 who rip us off, one's going to improve the product. And, and then that, that design comes back to us, and then we can build on their design. Um, I just want to tell one little story about, about, about piracy um, and about ripping. I'll come back to Kickstarter at the end. Um, so, the, the, you know, I, I, it, it, again, it drives me crazy when we spend, like, like months de- developing a design and, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. We put it out there in the Chinese clone, just like that. Um, but one, in one case in particular, and usually they're super sloppy about it. I mean, they repeat our errors and there's no documentation and they copy our marketing materials. But in one case, they actually translate our manual to Chinese. And I thought that was just interesting enough that I would find out who this person was. This guy, his name was Hazy. Oh, that's his username. And I got in touch and I said, look, I'm, I'm delighted you translated our manual to Chinese. You know, I, I would like, you know, one point however million billion people, billion people to, to use our product. Um, but would you mind doing it on our site? Because it turns out we, our manual changes all the time and we'd like you to share the same image files so that we, as we change and we don't want them to be out of date. So you can share the image files and you translate in Chinese. And he said, uh, first of all, hi. <laughs> Thank you for, you know, being nice about this. Um, sure, I'd be happy to. And he just said uh, he'll need a login into our wiki. And so I gave him a login into the wiki, and that was fine. Um, but I forgot we weren't really sophisticated back in those days. Um, turns out that the login to the wiki was also the login to the version control system that was our source code. <laughs> um, so the first thing he did is he ported his manual over and, and translated in Chinese and did a really good job of it. And the second thing he did, which was perfectly natural, is that he changed the, um, uh, the uh, user interface to the code so that it was also, so the menus were in Chinese, which makes perfect sense. And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that, but sure, okay, I get that. And then he started fixing bugs in the software. And today, Hazy is one of our top contributors. Um, and he's giving back. And in a sense, our pirates work for us now because we didn't treat them like criminals and we invited them in. Now, he's one, and there are still 99 people who completely rip us off. But that one moment of recognizing that open source can actually work. And if you treat people like they're part of a community and you make them, and you just sort of wake them up to the notion that actually giving back has some advantages and that collectively it, it's, it's a little counterintuitive. I totally grant you. I mean, we're all like, oh my God, you give away your intellectual property, you give away your ideas, what, you know. And it, it, it doesn't feel right when you get ripped off, but over time, it pays off. Um, so I've got years of doing this right now, and, it, and I can tell you that, it, that on balance, it's a, huge, it's a net positive. We have 20 years of open source in software showing us that it works. So back to Kickstarter. Um, by and large, ideas are a dime a dozen. Ideas, I, 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 don't, want, I don't want to ruin, ruin anyone's you know, sort of night here, but I think ideas are essentially worthless. I think execution is everything. You know, everybody's got an idea, but until they make it, until they make it real and show they have the competence to, you know, to, to you know, write the code and manufacture and all that kind of stuff, basically I don't take them seriously. That's why no one in our community, everyone's got ideas. No one pays any attention. Then they post a YouTube video of the demo, and it's like, now I'm paying attention. You've proven that your idea is, is plausible. You sort of pass the sort of, you know, the reality check, and you've proven you're competent enough to, to execute. Now I'm going to follow you. So I think in, on the Kickstarter world, people give away the ideas because no one's going to beat them to market. They can execute faster. Um, you know, they, they, they basically have the community behind them. You can steal the idea, but you can't steal the community. So it's a little, it's a little sort of, you know, makes your stomach a little, you know, flip a few times when you do it. Um, but we've got 20 years of experience saying that it works. Thank you. Um, yes, over here. Um, it's fascinating what you said. What about the implications of all of this? Which industries, if we wind forward 10, 15, 20 years, are really going to find themselves challenged or new ones open up? You know, um, 
you know, it's a, it's a great answer, and I'd li- I don't have a great answer for you. I can say that, you know, again, using the historical precedent, my first book, The Long Tail, was about sort of how the, the niche, the, 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 you know, the ability for, for, the, for, for you know, individuals and small companies and entrepreneurs, et cetera, to make, you know, products for, for the discriminating, for the, you know, for the minority taste rather than just the mass market, um, was changing culture. And everyone thought it was going to be the end of the blockbuster. And everyone's like, you know, ha-ha, Hollywood's still around. You know, television's still doing fine. Clearly, long tail, you know, didn't work. Um, you know, obviously it was a misunderstanding. Um, uh, what, it, what it was is not the end of the blockbuster, but the end of the monopoly of the blockbuster. And today, every one of us lives partly in the world of mainstream media and, and, and you know, Hollywood and television and all this, and in the world of the niche. We all have some, some passion or, or you know, a thing we're into that sort of, in a sense, defines us more as an individual. So, you know, yes, we're mainstream in some part of our life, and we're, and we're super minority taste and unique in another part of our life. And, and the two coexist really well. So it wasn't that, you know, that, the, that Hollywood lost, it's that the niche won. There's a place, there's a place for minority t- taste. And I think the same thing's going to happen in, in manufacturing. I mean, we've already seen it, right? So with, a, with food, you know, the rise of artisanal food and locally grown food. And, you know, if you look at Etsy and sort of the rise of, of, um, of you know, the artisanal handcrafted nature, um, my daughter and I were, my daughter um, asked for a, a jewelry tree. And I wasn't quite sure what a jewelry tree, but it's a, it's a little sort of thing to hang jewelry on. And, um, and you know, it turns out you can go to Crate and Barrel, which is like a big, a big uh, retailer, and you can buy kind of a generic jewelry tree. Or you can go to Etsy and buy something really unique and cool. She wanted one that had pandas in, in, involved. Um, and so, of course, we went to that one because, because she doesn't want to buy, have the same jewelry tree everybody else says. She wants something that sort of speaks to her individual um, skills. And that's now available. And Etsy is a billion-dollar business. Um, you know, uh, as a marketplace for the handcrafting. So I think, I think we've seen the rise of the artisanal. We've seen the sort of the value of the DIY. We've seen the value of the long tail and the unique, um, et cetera. So does this mean that mass manufacturing is over? Absolutely not. You know, you're still going to buy your spoons, you know, produced in the millions. But when you look at these other parts of your life, um, you know, um, and, you know, it, you know, when you look at the, your, your, your smartwatch, do you want to buy a smartwatch from Sony or do you want to buy a smartwatch from, you know, four brilliant kids in Palo Alto? I mean, increasingly, the quality is the same, the price is the same. One of them seems to be innovating at a super fast pace and the other seems to be kind of stuck in the, you know, mass manufacturing model and we're gravitating towards, towards, uh, towards, towards the niche, just as we did with digital stuff. Um, next, I think I'm going to let the microphone guide me. I, I see a hand up over here, and uh, let's take a look, move over. Um, I, oh, well, let's actually let me be, uh, let me let me uh, democratize the microphone, um, and let's take one up here. Um, uh, is that is there a standing mic or is it a mobile mic? Um, there's a standing mic to the right. Okay, would you mind? Would somebody mind in the um, upper balcony go to the mic, and I'll come back to you with the next question. Um, and now I'll take one over here. I think there's a hand up on the on this side. The gentleman um, in the in the jacket at the top of the of the aisle. And then I'll come back to you over there. Thank you. Um, hi there. Just a quick question. Uh, to be honest, I I'm, I think uh, you know I believe in in that this technology will revolutionise the way things are made. But I'm fairly ignorant in terms of, of you know just my knowledge of the field. Can you recommend any resources that I can? Uh, you know, that I could just use to really get up to speed on, on the technology itself and then the potential applications and so on. Sure, thank you. Thank that's, you. It, it, that's a great question. Um, you know, obviously, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention there was a new book um, <laughs> out. Um, 
called Makers, the New Industrial Revolution, um, available outside that we'll be signing after this speech. Um, uh, there's also the uh, Wired magazine in the UK and the US, both have. Um, but, um, I, you know, uh, broadly, um, uh, there's a series of technologies, and the, there's the 3D printers and the CNCs and the laser cutters, etc. And to be honest, you don't really have to kind of study them. Um, it's, you know, you, you can if you want, but it's kind of one of those, you, 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 you get one and you sort of figure it out. Um, I would actually, um, if I was going to start with one thing, first of all, if you have an iPhone or an iPad, do get, do get 1, 2, 3D, catch, um, and, and just play around with it a little bit. Um, go to, um, if you want to play around with the, the CAD tools, go to Tinkercad. Dot com Tinkercad, um, spelled just like it sounds, um, and just play around with it a little bit. Um, and you might, um, uh, as I say, Make Magazine is sort of the bible of this, and uh, you can, they have Make Zine, you can just subscribe, just, just follow that feed, and they'll be kind of a make, all maker all the time. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, it, it's a great learning moment, um, but I would recommend doing, not just, not just reading. Get, get something and start playing around with it. Uh, yes, sir, up there. Thanks. Yeah, um, this technology is incredibly exciting for the professionals and the enthusiasts, um, but it just makes me think about an old example of mass customization like Nike ID. Yeah. So um, as far as I know, um, it, it loses money and it's funded basically as a marketing exercise. Yeah. Um, and, I've, and my experience of it is that um, you know, it's quite a lot more expensive for the trainers. You wait right. a week, 10 days for it to turn up. It turns up and you realize you're not the designer you thought you were. Um, and you could probably got much better stuff off the shelf because there's such an amazing variety on the shelf. Um, so how do you answer that about... Well, when, I guess when you talk about democratization, are you talking for just that 0.5% of enthusiasts or do you think there's a potential to go wider than that? Yeah, it's a great question. I, 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 do, I do talk about that in the book. I mean, mass customization, I totally agree, has been largely a disappointment. Um, even Dell doesn't really mass customize anymore. It's this kind of canonical example of mass customization. And now, and now you know, it, it turns out you just don't really care <laughs> what's inside your computer. Um, uh, the problem with that mass customization model is that you basically you're just changing the color on a, on, on, on a standard product, right? You know, so, um, you know, the, by, by the way, the, you know, the, 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 the first example of sort of the democratized tools of production were really T-shirts and coffee mugs, right? These were standard, standard innovation platforms, which is to say you don't have to make the T-shirt, but you can design it. So Threadless and, and, other, and other firms that allowed you to kind of design against a standard platform and abstracted all the manufacturing stuff. So that actually became more successful. People really could express their creativity on T-shirts and coffee mugs. But it's, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a little trivial. What's different in all of those is that those are really limited, which is to sort of say, here's a box, and you can sort of paint, paint within the lines. Um, what we're talking about here is unbounded. Um, anything you can imagine, you can make. You're not, you're not just going you know, to put a new logo on a Nike sneaker. You can invent an entire industry. And, and that, I think, taps into a deeper level of creativity. Um, and you know, again, what's the killer app? I mean, in our house, it's toys. Um, that's certainly a lot more interesting than Nike ID, I, I think. Um, you know, no one else, no one is, you know, um, you, know you can, the Disneys of the world will let you put different, different faces on their princess, you know, put your own face on their princess dolls, but, you know, they won't let you make a Warhammer 40K mech. Um, and, that's, and that's where I think it, it taps into a much more interesting sort of, you know, unbounded creativity. In the same way that the, what was fascinating about the web wasn't that you could fill out a template, but that you had a blank sheet. And, you know, that's how creativity happens. And for the first time, I think we have a blank, a blank page um, with, with, uh, with manufacturing where we can just do anything. 
So that's well, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see. But that's but I but I think it's it's a, it's a good point, and this is definitely goes beyond um, what we've seen in you know customization of standard standard products. Um, I think over over on this side, I will take one here, and then we'll come to the middle. How do you, how do you see the evolution of um, the Android, Apple OS, um, and the Samsung uh, libel issue that evolved in California last month? The question is, do you see an open source community eventually evolving and displacing Apple OS, OS that OS being a closed shop, and you know anyone that wants to approach has to pay its its, its fees? Yeah. How do you see that evolving, especially when you know? Dell sales are going on only sure. one way down, and smartphones are going. Basically, smartphones are replacing PCs. Yeah. How do you see that evolving in the next few years? Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll bring that back to the subject because the broad open versus closed. Um, uh, so, you know, in full disclosure, I uh, am a, an Android user myself, and Android is now the leading the leading operating system in mobile, but not in tablets. Um, I think it's largely cyclical, which is to say, in times of rapid change and complexity, you kind of want the vertically integrated, you know, Apple model, where, you know, one company makes it easier. And we're starting to see a lot of the open source hardware, um, including the next generation of 3D printers, go from the kind of, hey, you can screw it together, it's, you know, laser cut plywood, you know, you can set all the PID settings yourself and customize it and do anything you want, which is a nightmare. And, and you know, I've been through every generation of the MakerBot, and I've got the scars to show for it to this sort of like, I just want something that works out of the box. So we're kind of moving towards the Apple model. And, you know, the next generation, the, the, ones, that, the ones that I recommend you buy, you know, be it the, um, uh, the new uh, MakerBot or the, um, uh, the 3D Systems uh, Cube, etc. they're basically just closed systems. Which I philosophically feel sad about, but as a father and a user, I'm like, yeah, just make it work. Um, so we're going through the Apple mode. Um, but then as it gets more mature, so that's vertically integrated. Then as it gets more mature, and it's like, okay, get it, use case established, it works, etc. I'd like a little more innovation. Then it tends to switch to the horizontally integrated, which is where you have the Android model. So I think what happened is that Apple was necessary to get us to understand touchscreen smartphones. But it's like, okay, got it, love it. I'd like a little more choice. Then there was an opportunity for, uh, for the open source model to kind of kick back in and bring in more, more platforms, more participation, more variety, more, more freedom. So I think it's kind of, you know, complexity leads to control. Control sort of establishes the market, and then you kind of want more complexity again because complexity is choice. Um, over here. Thank you. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, I'm wondering... In a world where we've got diminishing resource, limited space, increasing population, the technology we're talking about could be part of the solution, but could also be part of the problem. Yeah, um, make more plastic. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a great question, and, and, and I would say um, here's a couple things uh, to say. First of all, yeah, yeah, absolutely, we're making more plastic, you know. It doesn't have to be plastic, but it is at the moment. Um, but we're making it locally. You know, so there's no waste, no 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 transportation from you know across the across the Atlantic, um, uh, no no distribution inefficiencies. Um, second of all, I'm probably making less of it. Um, you know, my children value the things they make more than the things they buy. Uh, they value. There's there's actually quite a lot of research, and I talk about this in the book. There's quite a lot of research it's called the IKEA effect, where you build something yourself, you actually tend to value it more. Um, there's a little bit of you in it. Um, and even though you know all you did was screw it together, you sort of feel a sense of pride. 
Um, you know, unless you did it wrong, in which case you feel a sense of shame. <laughs> um, but, that, but the notion that you buy less but you value it more, or to say, or to point, you, you make your own. I mean, look at the difference between a home-cooked meal and a, and a purchased meal. I mean, there's a reason why we, we cook our own meals. And it's not that we, have, we can rival McDonald's in terms of economies of scale. It's that we actually prefer, we value. There's more, we, there's, there's, you know, the, the act of making and the quality of what we make um, um, over, overcomes the economic inefficiencies of, of DIY. And so I think that, you know, if we get this right... Um, we become more local bores, in a sense. Um, we localize um, production, and although we don't have the same you know, me- mechanical and economic efficiencies, um, the proximity compensates um, for that. And you know, we don't have the same sort of carbon, carbon you know, consequences, or the same waste, or the same sort of disposable relationship with our stuff. Instead, it's, we made it, and we love it, and we keep it, and we don't throw it out. Do we have time for, um, I know we're doing time-wise. Um, yeah, oh, up there. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Nico McDonald. I, I was one of the pioneers of DTP, as we call it, in the UK. So I remember your examples. Um, I could ask, to what problem is this the solution? And you've implicitly described that to us. I'm not sure you've explicitly described it. Um, but you also started talking about the way in which um, the Industrial Revolution had a profound social effect and was yeah. transformative. And that was, when it started, is a moot point. But during the periods before that, we overthrew feudalism, we urbanised people, we created new classes, we created new financial systems, we changed religions, the ones which were a bit kind of friendlier to usury and that kind of thing. Uh, And that was pretty profound. And I wonder, when you use the term revolution, how far going you really think this is? Uh, Will it scale? You know, we've... Uh, I'm involved in a manifesto called Big Potatoes and we've discussed a lot these revolutions and very quickly get to the limits of what you can print out on a 3D printer now yeah. 1984 laser printers were pretty limited too and now you have irises and all these kind of things but you can't integrate electronics into it very easily you know you can't do well you can do jumbo jet parts I guess but not if you're Chris Anderson um, you know actually isn't this just going to touch a very small part of our lives and be a bit transitory and not really feel like a revolution at the end of the day. It was nice um, then, but it didn't really make much impact. I, I mean, fair point. And um, I would ask, you know, as one of the founders of Desktop Publishing, do you think that you had an impact in the world, not just in terms of the, the act of publishing, but in terms of what, what was published, the voices and the ideas and the creativity that was unleashed? Well, actually, to your point, uh, um, we've discussed uh, the long tail back in the day, and I think one of the interesting things about that is it unleashed the past, all right? The, you know, the archived IP that you know, music labels had and so on. But in digital, there are very few areas you can really say that we've actually created new media forms through digital. You could say that in games we have, sure. to an extent in apps and so on, but that's really CD-ROMs reinvented and yet to be right. proven. So actually, I don't really see a manifest future in this area. So I would, I would, uh, you're making a distinction between media forms, and I would, I would actually focus rather on the content. I'm, more inter- I'm less interested in the form of the media than what we say. 
um, in it. What it unleashed was, you know, was new voices. Um, new, I, you know, the point is not that we're making the, you know, newspapers, more newspapers and, you know, and, 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 you know, and different subjects. The, the point is we're not making newspapers, right? We're, we're, we're you know, that the, that the Facebooks and the Twitters and the, and the blogs of, of the world are speaking, you know, um, about things that matter to individuals, not necessarily to, you know, the industrial scale sure, of, of media. As Cass Sunstein, who you'll know better from yeah. co-authoring Nudge, has observed, you've created echo chambers where people who can have one view can find people with the same view. Okay, it doesn't well, mean there's a greater global debate which is open-minded, should we say? So I would, I would argue, and again, again I can, I, I'm simply making an assertion, I don't know how to measure it, I would argue the web is rich in dark culture, that we have become more diverse, um, there has been room for the individual voice, there's been room for uniqueness. I'm not saying that, you know, that we all necessarily live in the long tail, but that the long tail has, rich, has enriched all of our lives by just giving us more choice and, and allowing these voices to coexist on the same, on the same platform as, 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 the, as the sort of, you know, mass voices of, of, of mainstream media. So, so I would argue that if, we believe, if, you would, if you would agree that the web has enriched our culture, then I would stipulate that, that, uh, that you know, implying democratized technology to manufacturing will enrich the culture of stuff as well. That we will have, there will be new things created, um, new choices available to us. I don't know what they're going to be. I can't tell you that they will be radically new, new life forms, but I can tell you that, that you know, you're not going to be stuck with this, only the stuff that's made from China. Um, you will have a choice, and I'm presuming that if they come from you know, orders of magnitude more people, then they will be order, orders of magnitude more creative and diverse. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, last question with the microphone. Yes, thank oh, you. I was lucky. Um, spinning all your ideas forward, I was just wondering if you're moving to a world where um, barter becomes more important than money. Where, where what becomes more barter? Barter. Ideas, skills, creation. Well, fortunately, I've queued up my, my last book. I have a whole other speech. We have? <laughs> um, yeah, so, so that's, that was the subject of my last book, um, Free. Um, which was very much the notion of the rise of the non-monetary economy. That, you know, I mentioned that, um, that in our community, um, our engineers who work on aerobotics um, you know, work for us for free, um, which we could never get them to do for money. Um, we could pay them. They won't take the money. It's trivial compared to their salary. Um, it's kind of, you know, they kind of, you know, um, you know th- th- they, they're like, you know, if you were to pay me for my work, you'd have to charge more for the product, which would mean that the price would be higher, which means it would be adopted by fewer people, which undoes the entire reason why I did this in the first place. So it actually kind of becomes an anti-monetary in some sense, that the social, the social motivations, the incentives for their participation are so much greater. Now, obviously, at the end of the day, they have to pay the rent and buy the food, and if they didn't have a day job, they wouldn't be able to do this night job. But the reality is, is that you know, we all have passions that aren't tapped by our day job, um, you know, the avocations to go with our vocations. And, you know, what the web taught us is that there's a place for that energy, that those spare cycles can be harnessed to create extraordinary things. Um, and we tend to do it for free. Um, so, you know, not that everything should be for free or that everything will be for free, but that, that we now have an engine that does what money does, but, on, but driven by social um, incentives in cell, instead. Now, barter is actually not the right word. Um, I don't think that there's this... Sort of, barter implies a sort of implicit compact, which is that sort of, I will do this if you do that. I mean, instead, what you have is this sort of um, open-ended, open-ended giving away stuff on the hope that more will come back in return. You know, you write, you write your ideas down and see what happens. Um, it's not altruism. 
um, by and large. It's, it's usually enlightened self-interest, which is to say you want, it, you want, to, you want to see something happen. Um, it's the web, and so we tend to do it in public. You sort of, you know, you invent something and you then post it on Thingiverse because you kind of want people to notice it and you want recognition. Um, and then people are like, oh, that's completely awesome. Did you think about adding this? And you know, someone else says, what do you think about adding that? And now you've got a community, and then collectively you're innovating something. And there was no agreement beforehand that they would get something in return. And yet the, the, you know, the, sort of the core philosophy, the, sort of the social compact of the web is um, give stuff away and see what happens. And it tends to work out for the best. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.